everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, today we're going to talk about propagating fruits, nuts, and berries. Uh, for me, this is the best part of sustainable living, uh, sustainable farming, sustainable agriculture. I really love working with fruit trees. I've uh, been doing it for quite a while now. I grew up on a largely self-sufficient farm. Uh, about 15 years ago, I learned how to graft and started building orchards uh, all over this area. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is focused specifically on food producing trees. If you want to graft and propagate ornamentals and whatnot, you can certainly do that. Um, I'm not an expert on that. There's a lot of overlap, I'm sure. Um, but if you want to, you know, you would need to ask other people to get uh, advice about uh, ornamentals. That's not my specialty. Uh, so as I mentioned in the last webinar, I've got a link up there to my website with a booklet uh, that I published. It's a long booklet, kind of a short book uh, that is free and open to the public. You're welcome to look at that. A lot of the pictures and information we have in webinar today are not in that booklet. So if you look at the both of them, you'll get um, you'll get a great great information. I hope. Uh, so we're going to start here. That first little picture is uh, me. I took that picture just a couple of days ago. Uh, Nikita's gift for salmon up front on the property here. One of the fantastic things about propagating your own trees, you can build an orchard for free, basically. You can grow your own rootstock, you can find wild rootstock, we'll talk about that. And you get uh, much quicker returns, particularly if you find wild persimmon rootstock, which is all over the place in Virginia and um, much of the uh, Eastern United States, certainly. Uh, uh, Nikita's gift will produce a good crop of fruit two years after it's grafted onto good rootstock. Uh, so that uh, we love, we love to get it quick and. Uh, Nikita's gift is a wonderful, wonderful tree. So the secret to propagation uh, is to apply the right method to the right plant. Uh, if you look at this chart, I pasted this in from that booklet, uh, it's got different propagation methods. It's got grafting, growing from seed, rooted cutting, uh, going, uh, rooting cuttings, layering, uh, special methods. So like if you look at apples, you're pretty much gonna graft apples. You can grow them from seed. They don't come true to seed. Forget trying to root them and uh, forget trying to layer them. They're really slow. It's possible, but it's not gonna work. So if you look down this whole chart, you can see what works. And for some things, like you go all the way down to peaches, you can grow those uh, by grafting or you can grow them from seed. They do come pretty true to seed most of the time. And you can even root cuttings, at least with uh, some success, not a high rate of success. So the trick is that every tree is easy to propagate provided you use the right method. Uh, if we go to grapes, uh, muscadines, right, they're kind of in the middle of the chart. Uh, they will not root from cuttings. They just will refuse, but they layer super easily, and we'll explain that. So the trick is to look at this chart. Uh, if the information's not here in the chart, naturally you can ask other people to go on the web, figure out which method works for which tree. Uh, and I would encourage you to not be intimidated by the concept of grafting. We're gonna go through it here going to show you a bunch of different grafting methods uh, in an hour-long presentation. We can, we'll do what we can do, uh, but I think you'll get the idea. It's not that hard. Uh, you can learn to do it, I promise, and you can build your own orchard with a little patience, like I said, for free. It doesn't cost you anything necessarily or very low costs. Um, so the first propagation method is growing from seed, and again, you have to know what's going to come true to seed. Uh, peach pits, for instance, I've grown out dozens of peach trees from seed, 
and they've all turned out great. Now, perhaps you'll plant a seed and get a crummy tree. I suppose that's possible. But most of the time, if you plant a peach pit from a tasty peach, you're going to get a tasty peach. Now, it's not going to be a genetic clone of the parent plant, <clears throat> but it'll be very similar. So for a home grower, um, you know, what works is not the same for a commercial grower. Commercial growers, they want all genetic clones. You've got 100 acres of Granny Smith apples. You've got one tree replicated hundreds and hundreds of times. That means the tree is all going to, the fruit's all going to get ripe on the same day. The tree is going to grow in exactly the same way. You can manage all of those trees the same. For a home grower, you don't need that. Some variability is actually good. So when you say true to seed, we mean by a home growing standard. Uh, sweet cherries, for instance, I planted out, before I learned how to graft years ago, I planted out I took a dozen, no, it was uh, 15 is how many it was, uh, sweet cherry trees from seed all the way to fruiting, which took a number of years. Not a single one of those trees made good fruit. Um, so it could have saved myself a lot of time if somebody would have told me, don't grow sweet cherries from seed, particularly if they are in the neighborhood of other flowering cherries and whatnot, they crossbreed, you don't get good seed. So uh, in temperate climates, in tropical climates, uh, you plant, you do what you have to do. I don't live in a tropical climate, but in temperate climates, uh, all the, your seeds need to experience a cold winter so they know it's spring, so they know it's, it's time to sprout. Peach bits, you just find a little corner in your garden, put them in the ground and they'll be fine. They do take uh, sometimes two years to sprout. Uh, you can't expect to get a tree from every single seed, but generally speaking, you throw down a handful of seed, you'll get a couple of good trees. Uh, you can't do that with like nuts. Pecans come from seed. Uh, they will often revert to a somewhat smaller pecan if you're planting the big commercial varieties, like you get a big paper shell pecan. If you plant that a pecan, as some people say, it might revert to a slightly smaller pecan from seed, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but you can't put those in the ground in fall because the squirrels and the voles and everybody will dig them up and eat them. So what you have to do, it's called stratification. It's when you put, put them in a bag, uh, put a little peat moss around them, and the stratification part is the cold part. Now you can look up stratification times for each individual seed. You don't need to worry about all that. Just put them in a, um, in a bag with a little bit of damp peat moss or damp paper towel, put them in the back of your fridge and plant them the next spring uh, and they'll, they'll take off and grow. Uh, now, uh, some seeds like pawpaws, uh, you can't let the seed dry out. As soon as you pull it out of, this, uh, out of the fruit, you need to get it into some damp peat moss, either get it into the ground or put it in your fridge. Now we have to be careful with the word pawpaw because I'm speaking to a potentially international audience here. In the United States, pawpaw means Asimona, Asimona triloba, which is a native southeastern fruit, southeastern United States. It goes up into the mid-Atlantic quite a bit. Internationally, that word tends to be referred to papaya, which is a tropical fruit we've all heard of in any case. So when I use the word pawpaw, I'm talking about the American pawpaws, the uh, Asimona triloba. All right, so growing from seeds is easy. easy. Layering is also easy. Here's a muscadine plant. Uh, muscadines are a native southeastern grape. They're fantastic, wonderful plant. They're indestructible. They're impervious to drought. They have very, very little uh, disease issues of any kind. Uh, it does help to manage them, but you can put them on a pergola. That's where you just put them on an overhead rack and let them go wild if you want to. Uh, they will not root from cuttings uh, at all. So what you have to do is you just bury a vine, a piece of a vine, and leave it. If you bury it in, uh, in April or May, you'll have roots by September. If you bury it in September, you'll have roots by the following June. Uh, and you just come back. And in fact, around any mature uh, uh, muscadine, you'll generally find uh, some accidentally ground layered uh, plants around the mother tree. Uh, so that's a super easy way. And again, just check and see which plants propagate that way. Rooting from cuttings is also pretty easy. It's a little trickier because uh, when you take a cutting, 
uh, trying to get it to root before it dies is can be difficult sometimes. Uh, the thing I have learned, I've done a lot of experimenting over the years because I've noticed that some years I get fantastic success and some years my success rate would be much lower. And I finally realized that the big trick is knowing that each, so there's a number of plants that will root from cuttings and some that won't. Go back to that chart, look at it. It'll show you which ones root, which ones don't. Um, but the thing you have to know is that uh, they will root at different times of the year. So a uh, pomegranate, you want to pull dormant wood in the early, early spring or late winter, put it in a flower pot. You can put it indoors in your living room on a north facing window and get it to root. Whereas with fuzzy kiwis uh, or hardy kiwis, you want new growth that uh, has time to harden off. So in Virginia, that means July, August, you've got new growth that comes out green and then the branch starts to turn brown first week of August. And that's when you're going to root kiwis. So the big trick with rooting or one of the big tricks is knowing when each plant will respond to rooting. Uh, I've tried to put that information in my booklet. If you can't find it, uh, try it on the web. Uh, but timing is really critical. It matters a lot more than your rooting medium. People fuss a lot about rooting medium. I have not seen much difference. Uh, so you, uh, if you're rooting an active plant in the summertime, like figs, for instance, uh, will root pretty much any time when the weather's warm. You trim off all the leaves, except you're going to leave one or two little leaves right there on the tip of the plant. Uh, your rooting medium can be a loose potting soil, a uh, peat moss, uh, perlite mix. Uh, you're going to soak it down with water, put it in a little flower pot. Uh, and then the cheap way to do it is just use a shopping bag from the grocery store, put that over the top. What happens up under that shopping bag is the air gets saturated so the little plant can't dry out. You're going to do this in warm conditions, put it on the north side of your house, under a tree in your yard, uh, full shade in the summer. Uh, figs will root pretty fast. They're about four weeks. Uh, some other plants can take six weeks, uh, maybe even eight weeks. Uh, shouldn't be any longer than that. Uh, so this is the super low budget way to do it. There's a slightly more elaborate way to do it, which is what I prefer, which is to get one of these clear plastic bins, uh, or sometimes they're a little bit translucent. You can usually put six or so of those little pots in there, and you can put more than one cut in each, in each pot. And of course, you can use more than one bin if you want to do this on a semi-commercial scale. Now, what's nice about this, uh, with the bag, it's hard to get the bag off the top of that plant without rustling the plant. You don't water the plant while it's rooting. You just let it sit there and go. Um, but the nice thing about the bin is you can you can pull that uh, the bin off at night. If you keep your cuttings low enough, you don't want to be jiggling the bins, the, the, your cuttings while they're trying to root. But you can pull it off. The uh, humidity, uh, at least in any moderately humid climate, is going to be 100 percent at night. As the air cools off at night, your relative humidity almost always goes up to 100 percent. So uh, the trick is to get these plants to root before they dry out. And air movement around the plants is helpful. It helps discourage fungus. So if you use a bin like this, you're going to pay 10 bucks or whatever for the bin. It will improve your uh, your uh, rooting success and you can take it off and give them some fresh air. But just take it off at night. Don't take it off during the day, at least not for the first four or five, six weeks. Uh, what happens after four to six weeks is you take your bin off or your bag off uh, during the day and then you watch your little plant. If it has little leaves on it, it's still green and growing. OK, you're in good shape. Uh, then you watch the little leaves and see if they start to wilt. If they start to wilt badly, you put your bag or your bin back over the top and you leave it there for another week or two. Take your bin or your bag back off. Uh, if the plant has started to form any decent roots, the little leaves on that plant will not will not wilt well, with the bin taken off or the bag taken off. Then you can start to move it. Let's say you've got it at the base of the tree or north, north wall of your house. You can move it uh, out to where it gets just a little bit of dappled sunshine. Uh, and then over the course of a few weeks, you should be able to transition it out into the sunshine. 
Um, I will usually, if I root plants one summer, keep them in pots indoors over the winter just to give those poor little weak plants a chance to build up. But if they're good plants and they're cold hardy, you could go ahead and put them out in the fall. That's up to you. Uh, but that's a basic rooting technique, a low budget home method. They use misting chambers and whatnot at the commercial level. If you want to start your own commercial nursery, uh, you'll need to do something better than this. But this, of course, is for people to do at home. Okay, now grafting. Uh, the previous uh, uh, propagation methods are uh, super easy. Uh, grafting is a little more complicated, not too hard. Uh, but we're going to go through a bunch of different grafting techniques, or several, uh, and, and review the basic tools. So that's me and Nika. We took these pictures just a few days ago. Uh, Nikita is, uh, we call him Nika. Uh, he's named after the Nikita's gift persimmon, and my daughter Rosa is named after the Rosianka persimmon. We love persimmons. Uh, so the first step in grafting is to get yourself a bottle of alcohol and a little rag uh, to clean off your tools. Uh, plants can get infections just like people can, so you don't want to uh, have the opportunity to clean up your tools and sometimes to clean up the scions. Um, you need some kind of grafting tape. Uh, if you're on a super, super low budget, you can uh, take those same shopping bags that you used uh, for uh, the uh, rooting technique and cut those into strips, use little plastic strips. You can use flagging tape, you can use electrical tape, you can use freezer tape, not masking tape. You need a moisture impermeable tape. I strongly recommend, or at least I have uh, really good luck with parafilm. It is a product, you have to buy it, uh, but it's very stretchy. You can see me stretching it there in front of Nika. Uh, it forms a really magnificent watertight seal, which is really helpful when you're wrapping it around your graphs. Um, so if you get some of that, uh, it's useful. Uh, back in the olden days, before they had these modern products, I think they used, uh, you know, would take thread and, and, and get beeswax and seal things up that way. So there's, there's different ways to do it. Parafilm is a modern product that's really quick and easy. Um, so the two, the two things that you're putting together when you're grafting trees are called rootstock and scion. Uh, Nika there is holding a rootstock in his right arm and a scion in his left arm. Now, sometimes the rootstock you purchase, now that is a purchased uh, pair rootstock, uh, but you can also graft rootstock that's already in the ground. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, the wild stuff is the best. It is really fantastic. Uh, the scion uh, is the, the tree you want to propagate. <clears throat> so let's say you're out traveling and you find a wonderful fruit tree that has magnificent fruit on it. You say, boy, I want to copy that tree. Well, what you need to do is come back in the wintertime and uh, find a vigorous uh, limb. Often the water sprouts you get up in the middle of the tree. If you don't have those, if it's an older tree, you want to get new growth right out, right out the end of a branch. Cut that off. We do it in Virginia. We do it in February. But wherever you are, when the tree is fully dormant, you cut off your scion wood. That's the tree you're trying to propagate. And you uh, roll it up in a damp paper towel, put it in a plastic bag, stick it in the back of your fridge. Uh, rootstock can be ordered. I use a farm in Oregon called Copenhagen, but there's a uh, nurseries will sell it to you. If you buy it two or three sticks at a time from a nursery, you're going to pay five bucks or so a stick, uh, maybe a little more even. Uh, if you buy them a hundred at a time, they can run 50 cents to two dollars a stick, uh, depending. Uh, so uh, somewhere out in April and May, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but there's two grafting windows basically. I encourage people to graft in the spring. Uh, if you look at my booklet, you'll find uh, some information about budding and different times of the year. You can graft different times of the year. I encourage people to graft in April and May, uh, but we'll discuss that a little bit more at the end. At the end, in any case, let's say you're grafting in April. That's your first grafting window. You're going to pull your scions out. You're going to check the bark, make sure they're still healthy. If they look all fungusy and slimy, like maybe you put too much water in your bag, uh, you can wipe the outside of your scions with uh, the, your uh, alcohol if you want to do that. 
Um, you got to cut your scion down to three or four buds. Two buds is okay. Uh, do not put six or eight buds. Um, you can't graft six or eight buds at the same time on a scion. Uh, all the buds will start, start trying to grow at once if your graft takes and then will die uh, from shock. Uh, so you cut it down to two or three. Now there's the cut top of the scion. It's a little bit of a fuzzy picture, but you have to seal the cut tip of the scion. This is the upward. Make sure your, your scion is pointing upward. Trees will not grow down. Uh, going back to the, the layering and, and rooting cuttings and whatnot, anything that vines, uh, like some grapes you can root from cuttings or kiwis root grape from cuttings, they don't have an up and a down. Vining plants don't have an up and a down. You don't have to worry about it. Trees have an up and a down. You got to make sure your buds are pointed up. If you graft your scion upside down, it will not grow. Uh, so you cut your scion at, at three or four buds, two or three buds. You got to seal the top. I use the parafilm. I like it because it's the universal tool for sealing things. Uh, you can use Vaseline, Elmer's glue, grafting sealant, uh, grafting wax, uh, paint. You got to just put something on the tip of that where you cut it to uh, to seal it up. Um, you can, and when I'm doing outdoor grafting, now there's a difference between bench grafting and outdoor grafting. Bench grafting is when you buy some rootstock, maybe you buy it in, in February or March, and you graft your trees indoors. You can only do that with apples and pears. You can't do that with any other variety or any other kind of fruit. Uh, you take those uh, trees, you can go ahead and put them in pots. You still have to seal the end of the scion. Now, I do a lot of outdoor grafting where I find wild persimmons, uh, pears, invasive pears that have moved in, wild plums, and I graft under those, so I'm right out in the bright sunshine. And when I do that, I actually wrap the whole scion in parafilm. Kind of gives you like an extra layer of bark. Um, another thing to remember about grafting is you have to graft within the same family. So uh, you can graft any persimmon onto any other persimmon. There's Asian persimmons, American persimmons, Middle Eastern. They'll all graft onto each other. Any apple can graft onto any crab apple or back and forth. Pears and quince and medlar are all in the same family. They can all graft onto each other. The stone fruits, excluding cherries, but peaches, plums, nectarines, apricots, almonds are all in the same family. They can all graft onto each other. In fact, almost all commercial peach orchards these days are grafted onto plum rootstock. But in any case, you can graft, uh, wrap your parafilm right over the buds on, the, on your scion. The, the uh, buds will poke right through it. Parafilm is really soft. Uh, then you need to cut. Uh, this is an actual grafting knife. You can use a Swiss Army knife. That's fine. A utility knife works fine. You just need a sharp, thin blade knife. But what I'm showing you here is how not to cut. People want to get that knife out far away from your body. doesn't work. You can't make a good cut that way. Uh, how you want to cut is by putting uh, just like that, where your, your right arm is cocked if you're right-handed. Uh, you notice I'm not, I'm not pulling the knife toward, my, toward Nika there. I'm pulling it away from him. But because my arm is cocked, my own arm can only move a few inches. There's no way I can stick that knife into myself. And you get a much better cut that way. Uh, so you cut it like that. You make an angle cut. If you're doing a whip and tongue, uh, you're going to put a notch in your side, uh, in your rootstock. Now, the intuitive place to put the notch is right where I have that knife uh, in the picture. That's not the place where you put the notch. The place where you actually put the notch is two-thirds up on the cut like that. Uh, see that? Uh, so you give it a little notch like that, and then there's the scion. Exact same cut, exact same notch. Uh, and then you're going to slip those two together. And I got this picture because the picture actually shows kind of how those notches go together a little better the drawing shows it a little better than the actual photo does, uh, but this is what it looks like, and it shows somebody about to tape it up, and this is what it looks like in real life. Um, sliding the scion and the rootstock together, and those notches are kind of slipping together. It just helps it hold together a little bit. Uh, it's called whipping tongue. It's kind of the old standard graft. Now, it's really, really, really important with every kind of grafting. The, uh, the layer of, of cells right under the bark, right between the bark and the wood, is called cambium. 
and it's that layer of cells when cam when the cambium of the rootstock touches the cambium of the scion, those two they, those cambium cells can grow together, they callus and then they grow together. Uh, that's what will heal up the graft and make the plant grow. So you'll notice how this scion is set off to the side a little bit. So on the side there, you've got bark to bark, cambium to cambium contact, and that's where the cells can form a bridge uh, to grow the grow the joint together. And what you do not do is put it in the middle like this. This is what to not do. That's kind of the intuitive thing. Well, let's put that scion right in the middle. Well, you've got no cambium contact on that cut. This is a 100% chance if you put your scion in the middle like this that it will fail. It has to be put to the side where the cambium is touching the cambium. So then you wrap it up. Uh, commercially, they often use really stiff grafting tapes. Uh, the one disadvantage or weakness of parafilm is it's very soft, so it doesn't compress the graft together. So it makes your grafting a two-step process. With a stiffer commercial grafting tape, you can pull the scion, pull the graft together in one step. I still prefer the parafilm. But if you're doing two steps, you use a rubber band to pull the, the, the uh, pull that graft together. So you just wrap your rubber band around there, around and around and around uh, until it ends up like that. And that rubber band just clenches it down really tight. It gives you really tight contact between your uh, the cambium on the rootstock and the cambium on the scion. Um, and then uh, you wrap your parafilm, you stretch it as you go around, and it seals up really nicely. The whole thing is very watertight, and ta-da, there's your finished graft. Now this is called a bench graft because it, the work is often done on a bench. You're holding the rootstock in your hand. You're holding the scion in your hands. But you can do this same style of grafting with trees out in the orchard. The cheap way to build an orchard is to forget building the orchard up front and think about just building rootstock. Uh, I planted quite a few orchards at this point, and you know I'm not wealthy, so we always do this on the cheap. And the way I do it is I just go out there and I put out seeds, I dig up wild plants, or I grow plants from seeds and pots. In the first year or two, I'm not grafting anything necessarily. I'm just getting a bunch of rootstock in the ground. And once I have a strong rootstock going in the ground, I can come back and can do any number of a, a bunch of different kind of graft cuts including whip and tongue if I want to, uh, and build up my plants from a rootstock. If a graft fails on one of those established rootstocks, doesn't matter, just come back and do it again later, do it the next year and uh, you'll get it. Uh, another useful graft is called a, a cleft graft. Uh, cleft graft can be done uh, on with really large rootstock or with uh, smaller rootstock. Uh, with all of these grafts, you're basically preparing the scion in the same fashion. You know, you're storing it in the fridge, all species, that, that process of collecting the scion when it's dormant, put it in the fridge with a damp paper towel, that's true for all species, regardless. Um, cut it down to three or four bids, buds, again, all species. Uh, seal it at the top. Again, with this one, I sealed up the whole uh, scion. Now, in this case, I cut both sides of the scion to make a wedge. It's a slightly off-centered wedge. In other words, one, the side of that wedge that's closer to, uh, that's, uh, anyway, uh, on the right side of the, the cut there is a little bit wider than on the other side. That's just so you know where the wide side is on the wedge. If you try to do an even wedge, you wouldn't know where the, the wide part was. Anyway, so then you take your rootstock and you crack it open. If you have a big rootstock, you're gonna need a bigger piece of metal than a little pocket knife, but you can do it on a big rootstock if you want to. You can get a, a big piece of metal and drive it down into a tree trunk and open it up and shove a scion in there. That will work, that, that is done sometimes. Uh, I don't do it that way so much. Here's another thing to not do. You never, never, never touch the cut part of either your scion or, or your rootstock. Even if you wiped off your dirty little fingers, and you can see my farmer fingers there, um, you still got oil and dirt and whatnot on your fingers. You're gonna contaminate the cut. So do not do that. Um, a cleft graft, you slide that wedge right down into the uh, rootstock. 
the uh, part that's closer to you is the, the wider part of the wedge on the scion. So that's where you get the tight contact between the bark of the scion, the cambium of the scion, and the cambium of the rootstock. Band it up just like you would any other graft. Tape it up just like you would any other graft. And ta-da, finished graft. Um, so there's another grafting cut for you. Now these grafting cuts have different names. Uh, the reality is that uh, all these grafts are very similar. You don't have to worry about which is the right graft for the right plant particularly. More or less, you can use any graft on any plant. That's not 100% true, but it's, you don't need to worry about what which graft is best for which plant. What really matters is which graft works for your manual dexterity. Are you really good at working with a knife? Do you have a fancy grafting tool? Are you working with a big rootstock? Those are the things that determine what, what shape of graft you cut. But as long as you put the cambium of the scion in touch, in, in tight contact with the cambium of the rootstock, it doesn't matter what shape the cut is. You can make up cuts. I do it all the time. Uh, and you gotta seal it up. Uh, so those, there's basic steps of grafting, shape of the cut doesn't matter. Now I have taught grafting for many years now, and some people just don't have great manual dexterity. Now that's not a moral statement. Some people do, some people don't. That's just the way it is. So if you are one of those people who cannot safely, easily cut a rootstock without cutting your fingers off, then okay, fine. Uh, go get yourself a pair of nice sharp printing shears. Uh, now this is, these are fancy Italian shears, they're double-bladed shears, tias they're called. Um, but you don't have to have fancy uh, $50 shears. You can do it with cheap shears. Just make sure they're good and sharp. Uh, take your rootstock, put it at a sharp angle, uh, and whack it off. Uh, whoops, shot past one there. There we go. Take your scion, prep it the same as before, three or four buds, seal the end, wrap it up with parafilm if you want to. Take your pruning shears again, sharp, steep angle, as, as steep as you can make it, but the same, roughly the same angle as that you did on your rootstock. And then you just stick those two together. Now, the only difference between this graft and a whip and tongue graft is you didn't make the notch. So with the notch, those two kind of hold each other together, which is kind of convenient while you're wrapping your, your rubber band and your tape around them. Uh, with this one, you've got to really be careful and kind of hold it together with your fingers while you're getting that rubber band going. So it's a little more touchy, but this is a great graft for people who just don't have great manual dexterity. You can, any, any chimpanzee should be able to do this graft. So you rubber band it up and then, whoops, come on. Yep, and then tape it up. Uh, with uh, your parafilm or your grafting tape if you're using a different grafting tape, same as before. Um, so that's the easiest possible graft to make right there. Anybody, anybody should be able to do that graft. Um, now, post-graft care is critical. Uh, this is a pear tree that I grafted this spring about six weeks ago. Um, you can see the labels dang dangling off of it there. One thing I really like about the parafilm and rubber band approach, uh, with a number of the commercial grafting tapes, and certainly if you use a plasticky tape, you have to figure out how to get that tape off of there uh, later on, and you have to do it without tearing up the bark on the tree. The parafilm and the rubber band just dissolve away on their own. I mean, they will slowly deteriorate, and then um, and then they go away. So you don't have to take them off. They fall off on their own, which I really like. Uh, it, it simplifies your post-graft care. So in any case, after you graft this tree, uh, this one was grafted. This was a bench graft done back in, Lordy, I think it was mid-February now. Um, uh, so I put it in a pot, I put it inside, I put it in a, put this one in a north facing window to start, but you could use an east or west window, don't use a south window. Uh, you'll get a bunch of little sprouts trying to come up, come out of your rootstock. You gotta rub those off, don't let them grow. Uh, and then you'll get little sprouts coming, hopefully, out of your uh, scion. Uh, once they get out about half an inch or an inch, you choose the best looking one, and you rub the others off gently so you don't break your scion off. 
uh, and there you go, you let that grow. Uh, even if you have two or three beautiful, perfect, perfect, immaculate looking uh, buds growing out of that scion, you have to take them off. You have to take it down to one. If you let two or three uh, trees grow, you get re really weak spindly trees and the whole tree eventually falls apart over the course of a few years. Just let one grow, that's pretty important. Now, the process of sprouts coming out below the graft will continue. It really varies between different species, different trees, but you gotta count on paying attention to that thing for at least a couple of years. And this is a difference between buying trees from cheap roots, uh, cheap nurseries and, and good like uh, nurseries where you actually know the proprietor. Uh, cheap nurseries handle thousands of these trees and they don't necessarily, uh, you know, they have underpaid workers uh, walking through the fields. They grow these things out in fields and they're not necessarily vigilant because uh, what can happen, and I've given away hundreds of trees uh, just to friends and, and whatnot. So if you plant this tree or, you, or you've got it out in the field, the rootstock and the, and the scion, the growth often looks the same. I mean, they're the same species. So you'll get a sprout coming up below the graft. Uh, I've had friends of mine, I give them a tree two years later, I come back and say, oh, there's that sour cherry you gave me. Look, it's eight feet tall. I said, no, it's not. Your sour cherry is six inches tall and your rootstock is eight feet tall. The, eight, the, the rootstock will grow up and become the tree. You don't want that. It basically destroys the graft. Destroys the graft. So you've got to plan on for the first year or two taking good care of that graft. Now, uh, if you're grafting outdoors, you just have to live with the weather. Uh, a cloudy period does help. Uh, if you, a warm, cloudy weather is ideal for outdoor grafting. For indoor grafting, you can start in a north window, and it's kind of like a rooted cutting. You transition it back out to full sun. Uh, don't get it too much heat too quickly, or you'll dry it out and kill it. Um, but this one is transitioned to full sun. It's going gangbusters. Uh, you could uh, transplant it. Uh, you know, I could go ahead and transplant it now. I probably will keep it in the in the pot through the first summer. I usually do that. But you could if you're careful. Don't rustle up the roots too much if you transplant it uh, this young. So you tear off all the roots at this age, you might kill it. So that's a completed graft. Now I'm going to show you how to do uh, uh, chip budding, which is a normal another form of grafting. And chip budding can be done in the spring. It can also be done in the fall. Um, chip budding is, uh, appears to be, as far as I can tell, the mainstay of grafting in the commercial industry. In other words, commercial grafting, they do a lot of chip budding. And I've, I've been curious why for a long time, because I think chip budding is more difficult um, in some ways, and the success rates may be a bit lower. But I think, again, the, the commercial standard versus the home grower, commercially speaking, the cost of the rootstock and the cost of the scion, of the scion is less important to them than the cost of labor. Chip budding is really fast if you get good at it. Um, so I think that has a big impact. And chip budding I have found, uh, they do it a lot with stone fruits. And what I've discovered with stone fruits, I'll show you a bark graft here in just a minute, uh, where the bark graft or some of these other grafts, it's pretty traumatic. Even with the, the, the grafts I've showed you uh, before, we take off everything but the scion. There's not a leaf left on that tree. Well, stone fruits don't like that so much necessarily. A good strong tree will handle that. Or if you've got a branched tree, you can graft one branch and not graft the whole tree all at once. Um, but if you've got a smaller tree, you can chip bud it and it's less and it's less disruptive to the tree. And I think that this, the fact that it's really quick and the fact that stone fruits don't take the trauma of grafting as readily as other trees, that's my explanation for why chip budding is the commercial standard. In any case, chip budding is a little more delicate. You're going into your rootstock and you can again do this with a pretty small rootstock or, or a bigger rootstock. I use those Schick injectors. Those are super sharp little razor blades. You gotta be careful with them. They will cut your finger wide open really quickly. But you're just gonna bite into the bark. You're gonna take out one little chip. 
you do an angle cut at the bottom of that chip cut. So you've got um, kind of a check mark uh, cut into the bark of, that, of your rootstock. And again, this can be little rootstock or it can be somewhat bigger rootstock. And then you're going to take that razor and you're going to slide it right under an individual bud. Um, and you're going to cut the bottom of your check mark. In other words, a kind of a mirror image or the same shape of cut as what you cut out of the rootstock. And you're going to pull out that little individual bud. That little tiny bud is all that you're uh, grafting. Boy, my farmer hands, they're a mess, aren't they? Always dirty. Now, we cook on wood, so I often have uh, soot on my hands because I'm the guy who cooks breakfast around here. Now, so there you go. You've got your little chip bud. Uh, you slide it right into that rootstock, right where you made the, the chip cut on the rootstock. And you set it to one side, again, not up the middle, one side because you're looking for that cambium to cambium contact. Uh, chip budding is good for cherries or uh, stone fruits. Like I said, you can do it in the spring. You can do it in the fall. Um, I did, I've done, it works fine. Commercially they do it and I've done it quite a few times myself where you graft in late August or September, uh, the bud will heal up uh, and then the following spring that bud will pop out and start to grow. It's really cool, but it's there all winter. Anyway, so there's your chip bud. You're gonna band around it with a rubber band just like your other grafts, but you're not going right over the tip of the face of that bud. Uh, with your rubber band, you're going just above it, just below it. And this is where you really need parafilm. I'm not quite sure how you do a chip bud without parafilm necessarily, but you take your parafilm right over the face of that bud and the parafilm is soft, the bud will poke right through it. So two or three layers of parafilm right over the bud and that's it, you're sealed up. Um, and that's the final uh, product. Um, now this is a chip bud, this is right out in our front yard. This is not a picture off the internet, this is my tree. Uh, I don't mess with cherries much. They are really difficult trees to grow in our climate, but I do love the flavor of them, so I play with them a little bit. They're not really, they're crummy from a food producing perspective in terms of their average productivity, but I can't help myself. I love the flavor of cherries. So this is a commercial cherry rootstock. It's been in the ground three or four years. I actually failed to graft, last year I had tried to graft it and graft just didn't take. So then in the fall, I chip budded it. There's two chip buds and you can see they're both growing. Uh, so in this spring, this tree is a forked tree, so it has several branches. This is one of the branches. The bottom of the tree is about an inch and a half, maybe, diameter. So it's a nice hefty rootstock at this point. Uh, that bud wasn't growing, and I said, eh, I'm going to go ahead and push it. So I whacked off the top and took all the branches off around it, and that bud said, oh, my turn to grow, so it took off growing. Now, that's a black heart cherry, which is, uh, they plant them up at Monticello. Uh, Thomas Jefferson used to grow them. It's a non-commercial sweet cherry. It probably will never make fruit here, but hey, I can't help it. I'm playing around. But anyway, that's a fall chip bud uh, growing in the spring. So I'll let the other side of that tree grow through this summer. And next spring, this thing will be up three or four feet at least. I'll take off the rest of that stuff. And then this little bud, that one tiny little bud, becomes the whole tree, which is kind of cool. Uh, now, my favorite kind of grafting in the whole wide world is wild grafting. Uh, usually I do that with bark grafting. Uh, that is a wild persimmon tree you're looking at that I am just about to take off with a set of loppers. And as you can see, it is a good sized tree. You can, if you find rootstock growing or trees growing that are of the same variety, same species that you want to graft, persimmons are my absolute favorite. But ornamental pears, those Bradford pears people plant, those things are invasive. They go all through the forest. You find those on your property, you can graft onto them. Wild plums throughout the southeast, there's a lot of those. You can graft onto those. Wild pawpaws, wild mulberries. They're also, uh, you learn the shape of that mulberry leaf. They're everywhere. They're just weeds all over the place. Wild pecans in our area. Uh, these are trees that grow in the southeast. So if you can find trees on your land or on your farm that are already growing, that are in a reasonably convenient location, the amazing thing is you've already got this huge rootstock. You're not transplanting anything. You're not disrupting anything. You're just grabbing a healthy, strong tree and taking advantage of that big rootstock that's already there, and bang, you whack off the top of it. Um, 
there's my scion. Now, this is a real graft. I'm not doing a pretend graft in this case. This is for real. Just had somebody taking pictures while I did it. Now, in this case, this particular scion looked really moldy. I mean, the bark looked great, but it, it just it was a little too damp. So I just wiped it off with alcohol and you know, give it a little, let it dry for a minute. Uh, now, you can only do a bark graft when the bark is peeling, uh, slipping, as they call it. Professor Bark Slip. He's a, a guy down in Asheville, North Carolina, who teaches uh, grafting and whatnot. But in any case, slipping means that you can put your knife into the bark on a tree and when you pull back on that bark it'll peel like a banana if you do that with dormant graft with a dormant wood uh, it won't peel it won't peel at all so this is an active wood graft you can only do this in april or may um, you prepare your scion uh, exact same way you would uh, for any other graft uh, as i said before warm cloudy weather is the best for outdoor grafting because you're right out there in the sunshine you get baking hot dry weather can kill your scions before they have a chance to grow now, when I'm going around a big scion like that, I'll often link my rubber bands together. That's three rubber bands. You just loop them end to end so you get a bigger rubber band, or you could buy bigger rubber bands too, I suppose, either way. But I keep just one little rubber bands. Um, you're going to cut vertical slits in the bark. There's where at the top of that uh, persimmon tree that I just whacked off. Uh, we're grafting a Rosianca onto a wild American persimmon there. Uh, you make some cuts in the bark, just score the bark. Uh, it has. It needs to be the same width as the scion or a tiny bit wider is okay. Don't worry about it being perfect. Just don't make it too narrow. Um, then you're gonna peel that bark down just like you're peeling a banana peel. Now some people leave that whole bark, flap of bark on there. Some people take it off. I usually take most of it off. Um, you cut the bottom of your scion at a sharp angle, uh, similar to what you would do with a whip and tongue graft, um, but you're not putting a notch in it in this case. You're just cutting it at a sharp angle. If you need to whittle it a bit to get it you know, down to a smooth cut, that's okay, but you don't want a really lumpy cut. Then you slide it right into that uh, place where you just peeled the bark off, wrap your rubber bands around to secure it, um, and then you're going to use a bigger piece of parafilm in this case. Now, I, I do bark grass with four, five, six-inch rootstock sometimes, at which point you're going to use up a bunch of parafilm. Now, this is traditionally where people would use uh, grafting wax, but you can do that too if you want. There's... I use the parafilm just because I can keep it in my toolbox. It's, it's the one sort of universal grafting sealant for me. Uh, but if you're doing a lot of big trees, you might want to come up with some grafting wax. You can buy it. There's some DIY homemade recipes. I've never bothered to make it. Um, and there's your finished product. Now, the amazing thing about these bark grafts in particular, you could do a cleft graft on the same rootstock. I prefer the bark graft. It's really fast. It's really easy. The only downside of this graft is you do get very vigorous growth the first year. Uh, this thing can shoot up six, eight feet or more in the first year. And if you get a, a summer thunderstorm, the connection for the first year between the scion and rootstock is not super strong. They can get broken off. Uh, you can either live with the fact that you're going to get one or two of your grass broken if you do a whole bunch. You could splint them, which I do sometimes. Or once they get up, say, two feet, you can come along and snip the tip and don't let them get beyond about two or two and a half feet tall. Uh, any of those solutions work just fine. Um, uh, but we do a lot of bark grafting at Living Energy Farm. We have hundreds of trees on our property now uh, that we've done. This is a ruby persimmon that was bark grafted about five years ago. After about three years, it started producing fruit. Uh, the last two years, it's produced fantastic fruit. So we're talking a bark graft that was, I actually did that graft, uh, you know, uh, four inches off the ground on that tree. I don't know why I did it so low. In any case, that tree shot up to full height within a couple of years uh, and started making fruit. Uh, fantastic growth rates. Um, this is a hayfield. Uh, what was a hayfield? Uh, 
persimmons are the only tree that I know of uh, that will survive in a hayfield. They can get mowed to the ground by the hay cutter three times a year. And that's how often people cut hay around here. And they, those things would just keep coming up, coming up, coming up. It doesn't stop them. So as soon as somebody stops cutting hay, those persimmons pop right up. And what we did out front here at our property, this, that's the driveway coming in the Living Energy Farm. And this picture was taken just a couple of days ago. Um, dozens of persimmon trees started sprouting up all over. Uh, so I went out there. Nikita's Gift and Rosianka have worked out to be the best persimmons for us. They're fantastic, amazing food producing trees and they're cold hardy. Uh, uh, grow them in this climate without any risk of freezing them out. So we just started grafting them onto those wild persimmons. Uh, the, the Nikita's gift will start producing fruit in about two years. The Rosianca is a little more patient. It's going to wait six or seven years, but at about somewhere around six or seven, that tree will be up, uh, you know, the trunk will be as big as your arm and it'll produce 150 or 200 pounds of fruit on a single tree. Now, this is about 150 trees. They're on both sides of the driveway. You're looking at only one side of the driveway. So this is going to feed us through a big part of the year. Last year, uh, we just got to the point where the trees were starting to ramp up. Uh, this year, we should have a fantastic crop. Uh, Illinois Everbearing is my favorite mulberry. Uh, this is about an eight-foot tall tree. That is last year's graft. Uh, I find wild mulberries growing. They grow all over. The birds get the seeds and poop them out all over. Uh, you can find the little mulberry seeds and plant, uh, little mulberry trees and transplant them or graft them where they are. Uh, they take a graft really well. Uh, and then zoom, you get these super fast trees if you've got a, a really strong rootstock. Um, you can see the size of the trunk on that one relative to my finger. That one is probably about four, a little more than four inches, I'd say, diameter rootstock. And that is like a four-year-old graft. Um, that is, that's my fastest growing Rosianca right there. Uh, that tree I'm predicting will produce 250 pounds of fruit this year, that one tree. Uh, fantastic, amazing fruit. And this stuff, this, this, this is fruit that gets ripe for us in the dead of winter. It starts getting ripe in November. We eat it through November, December, January, right through the middle of winter. Um, wild pears are another fantastic uh, tree for this wild grafting with the bark grafts and whatnot. So again, the birds uh, help us out. Uh, those crazy ornamental pears, or if you happen to buy a house or own a property that has those ornamental pears, the Bradford pears, the flowering pears, you can go up. Uh, uh, the trunk on this one was, that's maybe a three inch trunk on that one diameter. Uh, so I whacked it off up at about two feet and just stuck a bark graft on there. That bark graft shot up. Now this one went up eight or 10 feet the first year. This is last year's graft. And this picture was taken just a few days ago. I'm not making any of this up. Uh, now it's rainy and wet right now. So it pulled the dampness actually pulled the tree over and that's fine. I don't care. I mean, I could splint it and get it to go up straight, whatever. It'll form its own structure. I don't mind it being a, a complicated structure to the tree, but in any case, you get fantastic growth rates. Uh, and with these pears, you learn to look for the white flower in the spring. They're an early flowering tree. You can spot them right in the forest along the roadsides. So uh, uh, the, the wild plums are the same way. That once you learn what the tree looks like, it's not hard to spot them. You can grab them and graft onto them. Uh, fantastic uh, uh, source of rootstock to be able to grab that wild stuff. Um, so when to graft uh, relative to time of year. Now, again, this is in Virginia, this is mid-Atlantic. So if you are north of where I am, south of where I am, or on a different continent, you're gonna have to adjust uh, this. But uh, the important thing to know is that, that uh, there are different times to graft for different kinds of trees. And I had to kill hundreds of trees to figure this out. And what I've tried to do when I teach people to graft is to pull together a bunch of information from the different sources that I had a hard time myself finding. 
so apples and pears are the only rootstock you can graft on the dormant wood. So you can buy that rootstock in the dead of winter. You can graft it in January if you want to. Now, after you graft it, you're going to put those little trees in a pot or keep them warm so they'll go ahead and start growing. Um, but you can graft them in, in, in fully dormant wood if you have the rootstock in your hand. Uh, now, if you have outdoor plants, let's say you find one of those wonderful flowering pears uh, with a big flowering pear. Let's say you got a tree with a six or eight inch caliper on it, a big old tree. You're going to go up somewhere around four or five, six feet up off the ground. That tree is going to branch. Take off one of those big branches. Let's say you got three branches up at five feet. Take off one of those branches, graft it. You'll get a bunch of sprouts below that. Graft, uh, take those off. The next year, you'll take off the next branch. The third year, you'll take off the next branch. Over the course of three years, you can take this flowering pear and make it into a big, beautiful, fast-growing, uh, fruit-producing tree. Well, in the mid-Atlantic, uh, the, the, all the trees that bud out early, which are apples, peaches, plums, cherries, mulberries, most of your fruit trees, April, uh, mid-April is a good time to do that. Uh, now, uh, the third category are trees that are native to the U.S., uh, most of our fruit trees have been brought in from Europe and Asia. A lot of them are crossbred with European Asian trees. And they're blooming out really early because the spring and a lot of uh, doesn't, we don't, uh, Asia doesn't have the volatile temperatures that we have in North America. Uh, so, but because we have volatile temperatures, our native trees are more, they bud out more slowly. So um, uh, for us, the pawpaws, pecans, and persimmons, all native trees, they don't start really growing until mid-May, and that's when you want to graft them. So uh, if you're trying to translate this for around the world, again, pears and apples, graft them indoors if you want to. If you're grafting outdoors, you're looking for that point in time when the tree has really small little, little uh, leaves on it. When it's just starting to grow, it's that vigorous spring growth, and that's when you're going to graft. Like I said, if you can find a, a warm, cloudy period, not too cold, not too much bright sunshine, uh, that's your ideal uh, grafting window. Um, okay, now there's when to graft relative to time of transplant. Let's say you find some a wild pear, but it's in the wrong place. Dang it, I'm going to dig it up and move it. Um, well, uh, there's three categories for when you can graft relative to transplant, and it has to do when or, or how well a plant recovers from transplant. Again, apples and pears uh, recover super fast, and they take a graft super easy. You can graft them, you can dig it out of the ground and graft it and then put it back into the ground. Uh, in fact, if you're desperate for apple root stock, you can dig up um, uh, roots from out from under an apple tree and use that uh, for apple root stock. Uh, you can't do that with any other tree. Now, there are other root stocks that uh, recover quickly, category two uh, from transplant, and those are uh, mulberries, peaches, cherries, most of those trees. Uh, if you move them in winter or in early, early spring, you give them four, five, six weeks to recover. Let's say you move it in February, and then by third week of April, you've got a mulberry. It's looking really good. It's, it's growing really well. You can go ahead and graft onto it that first year uh, because those are plants that recover from, from transplant really easily. Now, there's some trees that recover slowly. Those are pecans, persimmons, pawpaws, jujubes. What you're going to do with those, and again, we're, we're building a free orchard here. If you want to go to the nursery and buy trees, go ahead. That's fine. But if you want to do it for free, you're going to transplant these trees and then you're going to wait a full year. Uh, so if I transplant it in April, I'm going to wait till the following May, 13 months before I try to graft it with a persimmon, for instance. Um, and I'll tell you, I've killed a lot of trees. I've had a lot, a lot of graft failures. Um, and through all of that, I've learned what works and what doesn't. 
the single biggest variable that determines grafting success is not how clean your knife is. I mean, that matters. That's not how good your cut is. That matters some. But the single big variable is the strength of the rootstock. With really strong rootstock, you can have a sloppy cut, you can have poor technique, and your, your chance is pretty, uh, pretty good. With weak rootstock, you can have immaculate technique, and it's not going to take a graft. You've got to have strong rootstock. So if you're building your orchard and you, you graft a tree, you come to your next tree and you realize, wow, this, this one's just not recovered very well, just leave it until the next year. Get some compost or something around it to get that tree built up. Wait until that tree is in good shape, the rootstock is in good shape, come back and graft onto it. That's another advantage of grabbing these wild trees if you can find them in the right place because they are super vigorous trees and you get uh, really high success rates. Um, I should say a couple more things about grafting. Uh, historically, the reason they started grafting in the first place, uh, the, when you put together uh, the rootstock and your scion, uh, they remain genetically separate. Sometimes you can see the graft for years to come. Sometimes the graft disappears. Uh, whether you can see it or not, there's a line where that graft used, was first created where they stay genetically separate. And it is the rootstock that determines the size of the fruiting tree, of what grows above it. Uh, this is historically the primary reason they started grafting in the first place, uh, particularly with commercial fruits um, like apples. They get to be really tall if they're on what's called a standard rootstock or if they're on their own roots. You know, you can have a 40-foot tall apple tree. Well, that thing's a bugger to pick, right? 40-foot uh, apple ladder, they used to do that. There's big triangle orchard ladders. You can still buy those. Uh, so they realized they could breed, uh, create on purpose, a smaller rootstock that would create a smaller tree. And then you plant your trees closer together. You can get as much or more fruit per acre on shorter trees planted closer together and they're much easier to pick. Uh, there are a few other advantages to grafting. Um, one is uh, regional adaptability or, and disease resistance. Those go hand in hand. So for us, for instance, with these Asian American persimmons or Asian persimmons that we like to bring into our area, these wild American rootstocks, the wild persimmon rootstocks, are immaculately adapted to our soil because they evolved here. This is their native, their native land. Uh, so you get the disease resistance uh, that's built into that native rootstock. When you buy rootstock, you can, if you know a particular disease is particularly bad in your area, you know, you've got root knot, nematode, whatever, you can find a rootstock that is uh, resistant to that disease and you can uh, graft onto that rootstock. Um, so, and you can kind of pick and choose. Um, one thing that I strongly recommend against, now there's the issue of dwarfing, which is what I was just talking about with the size of the tree. Uh, all rootstocks are not created equal. Generally, you can graft anything within the same family, but um, full, so the, they call it dwarfing. When you put a rootstock on there that's going to make a smaller tree, and uh, they have uh, the categories, dwarf, semi-dwarf, uh, standard, but it's, it's really a spectrum. They're, they're not distinct categories. Uh, and most of the trees that fall down into that full dwarf category are fairly weak trees. This is particularly true for uh, apples. Uh, you've got a bunch of numbered rootstock. So the, uh, the uh, M7, M9, for instance, those are full dwarf rootstocks. The commercial growers don't use them. They make crummy trees. Uh, they're really weak trees. They're small trees. You have to stake them to get them to stand up. If you have them in great soil, maybe you'll get fruit, but most people never get fruit off of them because they're just, they're just too weak. I strongly recommend stronger rootstock um, uh, for apples and uh, M111 or Elma 111. Those are the same thing. Basically, one is disease tested is the reason to give it a different name. But in any case, that's a strong, big semi-dwarf. And if you want to keep it a little bit smaller, prune it. 
uh, for pears, uh, I recommend staying away from quince rootstock. That is a traditional dwarfing rootstock, but it's like the M7, the M9. It makes a really a crummy little tree, and it's not disease resistant. The uh, the uh, uh, quince rootstock, if it gets blight, your whole tree just dies. Uh, so uh, the beautifolia and the calariana are pear rootstocks that make big trees. If you want a somewhat smaller tree, like a good semi-dwarf, the OHXF it's called, it's Old Home Cross with Farmingdale, the 333 is a dwarf, semi-dwarf rootstock. I use uh, 333s, 80, uh, OHXF 333, OHXF 87, 97. They got different numbered ones. But the point is to try to stay away from the full dwarfs. Now that said, some trees are natural dwarfs, it's called a genetic dwarf. So if you've got a small yard, so like the Nikita's Gift and the Rosianka, for instance, those are our two favorite trees, my two favorite trees, but they're very different in size. The Nikita's Gift, at full, once it's full grown, it's only about eight feet tall. Uh, that is a really small, fast producing tree. The Rosianka grows pretty much the same as an American persimmon, if you're familiar with those, it'll just keep going up and up and up. It doesn't tend to get all that wide necessarily, but a 30-year-old tree might be 40, 50 feet tall. It's gonna go up. A saijo, uh, which is a, a khaki persimmon, that one will make a big tree. Most of the khaki persimmons are pretty small, relatively. They don't, they don't make huge trees. So those are genetic dwarfs. Uh, so in other words, they're gonna stay small pretty much whatever rootstock they're on. Uh, the uh, uh, North uh, Star cherry, uh, it's a sour cherry. That's another genetic dwarf. Uh, the um, Giraldi uh, mulberry, uh, my two favorite mulberries, the Illinois Everbearing is a fantastic mulberry, but it makes a really big tree. So if you've got a tiny little yard, you're going to kill yourself with that, that with that huge tree. Just get a Giraldi. It's got a good flavor. It's still going to make a decent sized tree, but it's going to stay pretty small. It's not going to get huge. And other trees like uh, jujubes, they just don't get very big. They do slowly. They stay narrow. Pawpaws, they stay narrow. They don't get all that huge. Uh, vining plants, of course, you can keep them small. It's with the kiwis. That's the reason I recommend the acai because it stays small. So you've got a lot of flexibility. Once you learn these propagation techniques, you can figure out which plants fit your yard, figure out which plants fit your climate, and you can build your own orchard uh, pretty much at no cost. Um, so uh, Mark, are you there? Yeah, hello. <laughs> All right. Do you want to see and, if we got um, questions? Yeah, we got, uh, we've got a bunch of questions. But uh, before I go to questions, um, just let you know that uh, Wayne is also with us. Hey, and, Wayne. Uh, Hey, how you doing, Alexis? Thank you so much for this today and amazing other times. I haven't been able to be on live, but I've listened to every one of the, the replays. I was here all day today. This was awesome. Well, it's been a blessing for, for the community. Thanks and, for making um, it. It's been a blessing for the community. Yeah, and we're going to, everybody, we're going to take all these now seven episodes that Alexis did. We're going to edit them some. We'll work together with him some more. And put together a very cool little course. It'll probably be relatively cheap for you guys. Matter of fact, I'm going to make an offer right now. Everybody who's online with us right now today, and I don't know yet what we're going to price it for, but if you'll just write in the Q&A, I want the course, we'll give you a 50% discount when we put it out on the market for everybody. And that doesn't mean you're committing to anything. Just, just say it. And um, and then that way we'll know that you're somebody that we'll send information to right away. And I'm not promising the timing. It could be a couple months, but but it'll you know we'll get something done here. And again, we've been blessed to have Alexis with us. And so why don't we go to questions now, Mark? Why don't you 
sort of just uh, handle those with Alexis, and I'll just sort of uh, sit here and listen. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you, Wayne. Um, and also uh, let people know that uh, we have PDFs of this presentation, and you can uh, get the PDFs from the uh, handout section. Just click on the handout triangle, and you'll see two PDF files. And, and you can just download those by clicking on, on the files. And they have a ton of information and all the links that you need to get the booklet uh, that Alexis has and, and all his um, everything that he has been talking about. All right, so uh, with that, I'm going to go to audience questions. Um, and we do have quite a few questions here. Let me see. Uh, so here's uh, Jeffrey's question already addressed that. So Jeffrey asked, asking for the link to the booklet. So Jeffrey, you can get that. Um, Alicia has a bunch of uh, links and information, great resources. Thank you for that. Here's a question from Robert. Um, if we have frozen pow pow, can we uh, be successful sprouting the seeds? Thank you. Uh, I honestly don't know. Uh, my guess is would be no. Uh, pow pow seeds are somewhat sensitive, but you could try it. Uh, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't count on it. Right. Alicia ha has another question. Is there a difference between building and uh, sorry? Is there a difference between budding and grafting? Well, budding is a form of grafting, um, uh, but the same principles that apply to, to grafting in general uh, apply to budding. I mean, you know, keep it clean. Uh, the difference with budding is that there's a little bit more flexibility about timing. Um, you can do fall budding. You're not going to do fall grafting with these other, other kinds of grafts. Uh, you can do spring budding the same way you do these other grafts. It's just another form of grafting. It's like I said, there's I was really confused when I first started lear uh, learning this because I was trying to figure out, you know, what's the right graft for the right species? That's the wrong question to ask. Uh, commercially, they use particular grafts for particular species, like the whip and tongue is a common graft for apples and pears, but it's just because it heals up well and it looks better than like a cleft graft. Cleft graft is just as good. Uh, the budding, if you can make that work for you, great, use that. It'll work on any species. For the most part, there are one or two minor exceptions and you don't really need to worry about them because they're so infrequent. But generally speaking, any plant will take any graft as long as the basic techniques are followed of bringing cambium into contact with cambium, pull it together tight, seal it up, get your timing right in terms of the activity of the plant. You can do any kind of graft in turning, including budding. Uh, there's a, a bunch of other different techniques I didn't cover because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to overburden you here, but there's chip budding, there's uh, tea budding, there's uh, shield budding, there's, uh, you know, they graft big trees, you, know, you can graft a scion the size of your arm onto a tree and nail it on there. They do that sometimes. So you've got a tremendous flexibility and, and some flexibility in timing, but if, as long as you understand the sort of basic principles of what you're doing and why, then you can kind of go from there and make it up. All right, um, next question. Is Illinois ever-bearing uh, mulberry, uh, mulberry sionwood available in this late, um, available this late anywhere? Uh, probably not. No, you're gonna have to wait till next year, I think. I mean, you could try it, you could look around online, but I'd be surprised if you found any. Okay. So, um, okay, here's another question. 
So somebody says want course info. Okay, we'll send you the info. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Jeffrey says I want the course. Okay, thank you for that. Robert says how long does it take to walk from Interstate 64 to Louisa, Virginia? Uh, <laughs> it's about 10 miles. Okay. The town of Louise is about 10 miles from I-64, and uh, we're just a mile outside of uh, the town of Louisa. Yeah, that would be quite a walk, though. All right. Yeah, um, <laughs> okay, Alicia says, thank you. Keep up the good work. Please keep us up to date from time to time on your farm, on your uh, living energy farm. Okay. We'll do that. Um, and Noah says, please inform me. Okay, so a bunch of other people says information about the course. All right, we'll send that to you as soon as we are done. Um, all right, so anybody got any other questions? Or if not, we'll wrap it up in a little bit. And remember, we have um, webinar highlights after this. And um, if we don't have any other questions, um, let me see. Is um, Here's a question. Is composting the same thing as as crafting? Crafting. I, can you try reading that question again? That that's not making sense. Okay, it's composting. Is is composting the same thing as crafting? C R A F T I N G. I have no idea what that question's about. I'm sorry. I mean, grafting is spelled with a G. Composting right. is a whole different thing. I don't, I don't know what's going on there. Sorry. So Jeffrey, would you mind uh, clarifying that? Um, uh, okay. So Robert says, thanks again. A uh, bunch of other people saying course, please. Okay. So um, if Wayne has anything else to add, um, I'll turn over to Wayne. If not, we'll wrap it up and we'll start the um, webinar highlights. So Wayne, if you're listening. Um, no, Mark. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, I'm here and uh, thank you so much again, Alexis, Mark, um, I know you'll have a good time with the highlights. Jeffrey, I'm in the same place as uh, Alexis. I'm not sure what you're referring to related to crafting. I always think about crafting as it relates to making, you know, things like uh, puzzles and games and quilts and things of that nature or craft beer. So maybe you know, crafting, making a beer in a private setting, maybe crafting has something to do with making a, a natural soil supplement in a natural, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, you might clarify, Jeffrey. Then uh, Mark, why don't you go ahead with the, with the highlights. And again, just Alexis, thank you. Audience, thank you. Mark, thank you. And uh, I'll just sign off. Thanks. All right. All right. So it's Thanks Thank you, everybody, again, and goodbye for Alexis. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.